God had been silent for over 400 years. We knew because we had been listening, in a sense. My job, my job was to listen. People who talk a lot, you don't call them wise, do you? No. There are a lot of other names for people who talk a lot, but wise is not one of them. In my position, I looked for signs everywhere. We watched the stars. We watched them and tried to interpret what they were telling us. I read of a star that would announce a new king. And then out of nowhere, a star appeared. This star was different. It was a beacon in the night. After watching it for a while, I felt this was the star the Jews had been looking for. The star foretold in their ancient scripture, the star of the Messiah. So I followed it. There were a few of us, and yes, we actually followed a star. It was so bizarre. This star led us. It moved and we followed. And eventually it led us to Jerusalem. That's where we met Herod. He claimed he also wanted to worship the Messiah. So he asked us. No, he demanded that once we found the newborn, we come back and tell him. But we were warned in a dream not to trust this man. For over two years, we journeyed with the star guiding us all the way to Judea. And then it stopped, shining down over a small cottage. Our journey ended not at a palace fit for a king, but at the home of a peasant. Our journey ended not at a palace, but at a small cottage. This was it. We gathered our thoughts, our gifts, did what we could to to gather our emotions. And behind those doors, we found a new king. A king who commands the movement of the stars, of the sky, and yet came to live among his people. God was finished being silent. He spoke and his word became flesh to dwell with his people. We knelt down that night. Yes, we kneeled before the baby boy. And each of us laid gifts at his feet. We had to. After 400 years of silence broken by the cries of the new king. Yes, he spoke and we, we worshiped. All right. Well, very good. My name's Aaron. Um, super happy, excited to uh, get to uh, preach the series on Christmas because uh, it's a wonderful time of year. And uh, today is, as we continue our Advent series, uh, we got to light the uh, candle of hope and oftentimes called the candle of prophecy. And so today uh, we'll be talking about the hope that we have, a, a prophecy that Christ had, uh, had fulfilled, one of the many. And uh, at this week, you'll notice that the candle is colored purple on your, on your Advent wreaths. The reason it's colored purple is a, a reminder for us, it's a, it's a color of preparation. 
And so when you see the, the color purple uh, every week as we, we do that, it's, it's a time to be the self-reflection, to look at our hearts and examine ourselves and our lives and prepare to worship the Lord uh, and to celebrate His coming. And so that's what we'll be focusing on this week. And, and what a great way to do that is uh, by looking at the many reasons that we have uh, hope that um, actually knowledge and faith you know that He fulfilled prophecy that He came. And uh, boy, we, uh, we, we need hope. Um, I as a... Uh, uh, looking at just the, the news, uh, you see how things are kind of crazy in the world. And uh, one thing I noticed, uh, I read a little blurb this week, and it said that uh, depression and anxiety are at all-time highs. Um, it's actually something huge that even uh, those that are in the medical profession, doctors are spending a great deal of their time working on people uh, caring for anxiety issues and depression issues and things like this, but because the world is crazy. I think a lot of people are really struggling with needing hope. And that's one of the most important things. We look at the season. One thing that it does is it reminds us that we have not just reason for hope, but uh, it begins there. <laughs> that we know that God hasn't forgotten us, that he's actually at work, that the Messiah has come, that there's good news actually outweighs the bad by far. And uh, so if you come this morning and you are anxious, you are feeling down, uh, we've got good news for you, and uh, we'll go into God's Word today, and we'll talk right about that. However, first, I want to show you our memory verse, which talks about some really great news for all of us. Isaiah 9-6. Here's a prophecy. The same memory verse. We, we always do memory verse for these are new with us every week. This is one we're going to do for the entire Advent series. It comes to us from Isaiah, a prophet that lived about 700 years before Jesus And he gives his prophecy, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. All right, we're going to come back to that verse over and over again as we go through this series, but that's a prophecy. 700 years before the Messiah came as to who he would be and what he would do. Isn't it amazing in this world that we have a guy, the God who came as one of us, a child is born. A gift he was given. And we looked at the government. We look at, at how things rule. And there was a prophecy. We looked at it in Daniel, right? It was given over 600 years before the Messiah came. That there would be all these different empires, right? The statue that had all these. We talked about the, the prophecies of Daniel. And if you missed that, by the way, it's on our website, funchurch.com. You'll get Daniel. It's amazing. And there would be these governments that would come through the world. But eventually there would become a government that was from God. And it would fill the entire globe. And do you know what we have today? The the banner of Christ flies in every single continent, in every single country. It is everywhere. And it's supposed to grow. That's the prophecy that 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 kingdom would grow, not like a statue that was made by people, but like a mighty mountain. Eventually, it will just do away with the, the, the visions of this world. How hopeful is that? It's already started. He's a wonderful counselor. We could trust God. He knows best. He wants our best. We can trust it when he tells us to do things. It's not just good advice. It is the greatest advice ever. Right? Isn't it amazing that we have a God that is that way? And that he's mighty, that he's powerful? Right? That we can trust that not only does he say that he'll do things, but he can actually do it? Like, he can do the, what we would consider the impossible. Like, be born of a virgin. That would be difficult. But that God could be born in flesh? <laughs> Mucky God. And he's everlasting that he's not going to wear out. 2,000 years ago may seem long for us, but it's a blink of an eye for our God. In the course of eternity, he's never going to stop being powerful. 
But you know what? His kingdom is not like ours. He's a prince of peace. Where God rules and where God reigns, peace rules. And he brings peace to us. He came 2,000 years ago to bring peace, and he's bringing peace. And he is available for us now. And boy, do we need it. So I challenge you that you could take that memory verse, and it can be more than just actions and gestures, but take there's a little card in your bulletin. You take that out, and you put it in your pocket. Well, tape it to the back of your phone, because I tell you, we live in a time that needs peace, don't we? Remind yourself of the power and the truth of God. He keeps his word. We're going to talk about that today. It's a good thing. In fact, today we have this great story. It's a wise man's story. And so uh, we find that it's in the Gospels. It's in the, in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, you'll turn it there today. And if you uh, forgot your Bible or you don't have one, whatever, we've got a plenty in the back. You could pick one up right there. And if you need a Bible, keep it. Or maybe you need an updated one. It's our gift to you. Uh, and if you have one of our Bibles, it's going to be on page 700, or 676. And uh, there in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, we read, uh, starting verse 1, it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all of the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them, Where's the Messiah to be born? In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be a shepherd, or who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go, search for the chi- uh, go, go search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw a child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned uh, in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. That's one of the weirdest stories, I think, in Scripture, isn't it? Here you got this group of guys, magi. You know what magi kind of sounds like magic, right? <laughs> These guys were certainly not Jewish. Show up, unexpected, looking for a king. It is an amazing uh, story. We're going to go into it a little today. I, I think it's a, it's a powerful passage for us when we really look into it. The first thing we want to look at is verse 1. If you read there, you're going to notice the timing of it. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. This was afterwards. You know, this, the, the nativity uh, that we put up around our house and all that, these aren't bad. We, we, we kind of play a little fast and loose with time because we want to have all the characters together, right? But there wasn't really a night where the shepherds were there and all of a sudden these wise men show up and the three kings or whatever and have their gifts. It just didn't happen. This was after Jesus was born. And that doesn't really matter too much. It's not like anybody's going to lose their faith or anything over that if they have the timing off. But it's, it's interesting for us to get, to realize that, that this story continued to unfold, right? 
And, and it wasn't a secretive thing, and it wasn't just real quick, like, oh, it happened. No, this was a story that, I mean, Jesus' birth was miraculous and was, was witnessed by many. And so uh, how, when did this happen? Most people, scholars think around two years after Jesus was born. Jesus would have been a little toddler at the time. Like, I don't know if Jesus had terrible twos. I'm pretty sure he didn't. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? They think how weird that would be, right? Well, why do we think about two years? Well, look at verse 7. You see there it says, Herod called the Magi secretly. I like that's funny. Why would he do that secretly? He wants to know about this king because he wasn't him. <laughs> right? Get as much detail as he can. And what does he find out from them secretly? What does Herod want to know? Well, the exact time the star appeared. Not just the, oh, it was around this time. He wanted to know exactly when this star appeared. And realize that in the ancient world, that um, type from the east and stuff, they, rulers believed that the stars could foretell new kings and, and, and when they would come to power and things like this. And In fact, uh, uh, there was uh, several different... Uh, Julius Caesar actually killed several of his competitors. So there was a star that rose that he said would be a new king, and so he slaughtered several other people uh, that were... Uh, heir to the throne to make sure that would maybe that would fulfill the star. Right, so, um, so they would they were looking at this star and they say, hey, there's a king and, and all of this. And so they realized that the, the Herod was a little probably not open to it because he wanted to stay king. And uh, and so he finds out the exact time. And so what does he do then in verse uh, 16? When we go down there. It says, when Herod realized that they had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. That's why we think that it was about two years. Uh, so some time had passed. Joseph and Mary had Jesus. They had s- probably some other children by that point. Um, and we have this the setting then we also see in that verse one that timing wise was during the reign of king herod which helps us pin when jesus was born right which is a little different than our calendar the gregorian calendar was set for the best information that they had at the time but we were off by a few years uh herod the great who this was he died in uh 4 bc right so if he's still alive here which means jesus was born in bc which i think is hilarious right (laughs) Our calendar was close, but it was off by a few years. No big deal. But something else we need to realize is he was born in the time of King Herod. Herod was not a nice guy. Herod the Great was brutal. Herod the Great murdered his wife and her brothers because he was afraid that they might be conspiring to take his throne. I mean, he was cold-hearted. Right? The guy would slaughter all kinds of people. In fact, he kills a bunch of innocent babies because he's afraid if somebody would take his throne. Right? And so we see the timing-wise, here we have a, a, a ruler in Jerusalem that was brutal, but not only that, he wasn't even truly a Jew. See, Herod didn't come from uh, way back. There were these guys, they're called the patriarchs of our faith. There's Abraham, there's Isaac, and there's Jacob, right? And Jacob was a twin, and he had a twin named Esau. And uh, the rest of the Jewish lineage really went through Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, Esau and, and uh, Jacob didn't get along very good, and uh, Herod was a descendant of Esau. <laughs> and so he wasn't even a Jew, but he was powerful, and he was uh, uh, really uh, cunning and all this kind of stuff. And the Romans, when they took over, they put him into power. And so he didn't have a whole lot of love for the Jewish people. He ended up building the temple, making the temple bigger so for political gain, not for religious Right? It was a time when, they, when the very nation of Israel was ruled by somebody who didn't even follow the faith and who was called their king. It was a time of great darkness, it would seem like. 
I think it's something that we would take, if you look at the history of Israel, just briefly, how God spoke. When, when it says that it was the time of Herod the Great, realize that it, this was not just any particular period of time. I mean, God started speaking, if you go back 20 centuries before when Jesus came, 20 centuries, that's between us and when Jesus has come now, right? About 20 centuries. That's a long time, right? 20 centuries before Jesus came, God began speaking to the Jews. He spoke to Abraham. And he promised Abraham, you're going to be of my people, right? And you're going to have this, and he gave different promises, and there's going to be one through you. One of your descendants is going to be a, a blessing to all people in the world, one of those early messianic prophecies, right? And so God speaks to Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob, and then he, he keeps his promise because he gives this, this, uh, this promise to Abraham. He says, your descendants are going to spend a, a, a few hundred years in slavery and, in Egypt, and eventually you're going to come out. Well, guess what happened? They spent a few hundred years in slavery in Egypt, and eventually they came out. And that happened around, uh, around 16 centuries before when Jesus came. And there was a guy named Moses who was raised up, and God continued to speak to the people. He spoke through Moses. In fact, God didn't just speak like by giving him a promise. God actually spoke and said, write this down. And scripture, we began to find scripture being recorded. In fact, God didn't just write and, and say, I, inspire this and allow you to write scripture. Genesis and Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. The books were written there through the hand of Moses. But he also, God himself, took his finger and carved into the very stone the Ten Commandments. Isn't that amazing? God continues to speak to his people very specifically and say, you have a, you have a purpose and you're going to take this promised land, and from there, God said he promised he's going to do some really amazing things. He prepares the people to be those that, the nation that would bring about the Messiah. That's 1,600 years before Jesus was even born. But God wasn't done talking. You know, when Moses shows up with the people to cross into the promised land, they lose faith. And they say, well, maybe the people there are too tough, and so we're not going to do it. So God says, well, go have a timeout. And so for 40 years, they walk around the desert till all that generation dies. And then their kids go in, and Joshua begins the conquest. And they go back in, and they, they conquer the land, but not completely, not fully faithfully, but they're in the land. And during that time, even though the people hadn't been fully faithful, God continues to speak to them. It was a time in the Scripture we call the Judges. And there's actually a book there in the Old Testament that talks about the Judges and what happened during that time. But it was a time in Israel there wasn't really a king. God was the king. And, uh, and so the, the nation was basically ruled. They had the 12 different tribes, and, and they all had their space, right? And each tribe kind of took care of themselves. And, and for most part, the people would be faithful until they got comfortable. And then once they got comfortable and things were going well for them, then they would start to forget why we need God. And so they start to do things their own way, and they started intermarrying with the people that they didn't kick out of their land, right? And so they started worshiping foreign gods, and then they stopped really caring what God had to say, and then they start to rebel against God, and then God would be like, I warned you against this, so if you do that, if you don't want me to protect you, I won't. And so then he would allow the nations around them to come in and, and do what they were going to do. And so you had the Philistines, and you had the Canaanites, and that whole thing right, would come in. And then when the people were miserable enough, they'd be like, oh yeah, we forgot about God. And as soon as they would turn, they would come back to God. They'd say, like, you know what? We kind of messed up. We actually do like you. We want to serve you. Um, and we repent. We're like, we're, we will worship you. Then what would God do? Did, did, he, did he just reject them? He's like, no, you didn't follow me. No, what did he do? Every time they came back to him, he would raise up somebody called a judge. 
And, and, and so uh, these judges weren't just like, we think of judges like people that sit behind a bench and be like, guilty. These were different. These were judges. Were, uh, they were like superhero warriors, um, amazing people like uh, you know, Samson and, and you have uh, you know, Gideon and Deborah, right? We have these, these people that were gifted in, in enormous ways. And what they would do is they deliver the people from the oppression and they would kick the enemy out. And they would restore the people back to faithfulness to God. And while the judges lived, the people would be faithful. And eventually the judge would die, and then the people would forget. And then another judge would come. And that happened. That lasted for several hundred years. Eventually, around the 11th century, the people of Israel said, you know what? We, we don't want judges anymore. Um, we want a king. Because all the other nations around the world were kings, so we want one too. And there was one judge who was living at that time named Samuel. He was the last of the judges, and he was so upset with them. He said, how on earth could you possibly want a king when you have the greatest king ever? You have God as your king. But they're like, no, 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 we want a king. And so God said, don't worry about it. I'll give them a king. So he gave them the first king, the one that they thought they wanted, and he wasn't awesome. And so eventually he, he gets kicked out. And then he brings up David, one that would be no one would expect and God begins the, this time, it was called the kingdom, the united kingdom. And Israel then was all united under one king, David. And David wasn't just a king, but he was also a prophet. He writes the Psalms, uh, many of these Psalms for us, and he prophesies about God. In fact, he even prophesies about how Jesus would die on the cross in Psalm 22. An amazing guy. The 23rd Psalm, most people love, prophesy written through, through David. And David had a son, Solomon. Solomon became king. Solomon was a wise king. God uh, helped him grow in wisdom, and he, he uh, brought a lot of wealth to the empire and a lot of prestige to the Israel, and it grew its borders and all kinds of things. And fortunately, even though Solomon was wise, he wasn't very smart because he married like a thousand women, and that's a collection that no one should have, right? <laughs> and so he did a lot of good things, but he didn't do anything perfect. And then we see Solomon, he begins to to wander from the faith a little bit, although God even prophesies through him. Imperfect as he was, we got some books of, the, of Scripture that are written, Song of Solomon being one of them, and we have Proverbs. And, and God then, uh, after Solomon passes, it goes to his son, and, and he didn't do a great job parenting because his son was a doofus, and split the kingdom. And then that happened in about the, the 10th century, and we have a divided kingdom. Now you have Israel, which are 10 tribes, out of the 12, go north, and they, the first thing they do is they set up a golden calf. And they said, this is where we're going to worship. And the southern two remain faithful to God, and they have Jerusalem. And, and uh, so the kingdom is divided, ten to two tribes. And God still then isn't done speaking to them. He doesn't pull out his prophets. He continues to speak to the people. And so he say that, that you have these, these prophets like Elijah and Elisha. And reading their story, it's amazing that God speaks to them in power and showing the people that, that God is still very much a part of this. But the ten tribes never turn back. And so eventually there you have the, the, the ninth century, God continues to speak to those northern ten tribes and saying, listen, come back to me. And, and the southern too, they also had their times where they would go away from God and come back. And so he sends other prophets like Jonah and Joel and Amos and Hosea there in the ninth century. And, and, and still the, there was this, this division between where people should be with God and, and believing Him sometimes and sometimes not, and the northern tribe continues just to reject Him. So by the 8th century, God sends Micah and Isaiah, final push to try to tell the north, hey, come back, trust me, there's prophecy, and I love you, and there's a purpose in this. 
But the northern ten tribes continue to reject God, and so God rejects them and sends the Assyrians in. And they take over and basically destroy the northern ten tribes. And that happens 800 years before Jesus is born. And then we see the next century, the 7th century, that we see that Judah also is, is at risk of, of falling apart. And we find that Daniel, we just went through the first six chapters, and, and after Christmas we'll go through this next six, all the prophecy, right? But the first six, we see Daniel. Daniel is in Jerusalem, the southern uh, the capital of, of Israel and, and, uh, and Jerusalem, and he's taken captive. And he's taken captive to Babylon, a new world empire. And he's given that prophecy of the statue that was explained all the time. That would be a head of gold. That would be Babylon. And then after then, that would be the, 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 the chest of silver. It would be the Medians and the Persian Empire. And after that, he said there would be the belly of bronze. The, the, uh, the Greeks would come. And then there would be the leg of iron. That would be the Republic of Rome. And then the feet of iron and clay, the empire of Rome. And then the Messiah would come. He, he receives this. Daniel is there. And Daniel, because of his faithfulness, rises to a great position of prominence. And God speaks to the people even in the midst of captivity. In fact, takes one of their captains and puts him in charge and becomes basically the, the, the headmaster of, of Wise Man University, bringing scripture in because Daniel knew the word. And guess where the Magi had come from? Wise Man University. Isn't it cool? God works through time. Study these things. How would they know to look for this? You know, and then after the 6th century, after, after Daniel uh, passes, we have the 6th we, we see that the 6th century Persia and the exiles all returned back to Jerusalem. And it wasn't that God wasn't done speaking to him even then. I mean, God sent other prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to go and to talk to the people and talk about it's important to have right worship, not divided worship. And in the 5th century, after a long time of trying to rebuild the wall, the temple wall was, the temple, the second temple, and the walls around Jerusalem were finally completed. And God, even then, he doesn't, wasn't done talking. He told the people through Ezra and Nehemiah and, and that there was a place, that like there was a Messiah that was coming, right? That there was a purpose for them and that they needed to stay righteous and they needed to stay on track with God, what he had for them. And then in the year around 450, God speaks through the prophet Malachi. And then he stops. 450 years before Herod. 450 years of silence, deafening silence. After 16 centuries of hearing from God, from prophets and judges coming over and over again and scripture being written, all of a sudden, after the temple is rebuilt, after it seems like we're finally kind of getting back on track and the people are coming back to faith, it stops. Where's the next prophet? I imagine the people would have wondered, now we're being faithful, where are you, God? You know, God was quiet, but it didn't mean he was absent. Those 400 years, just because God wasn't speaking doesn't mean that God wasn't working. See, God was keeping his word, the word that he even gave to Daniel about the different kingdoms that would come. You know what happened in the 4th century? At the height of its power, when, when, when Persia was like the strongest it could be, these crazy Greeks all of a sudden started to rebel against them and take back their cities. And it was called the Grecian-Persian Wars. It was crazy. And, and against all odds, they began to win and to take, out, out, uh, take ground. And then in the third, third century, there was this man named Alexander the Great was born. And when he came into power as a young man, basically swept the, Greek, or the Persians from power. Unbelievable. And the belly of bronze happened. And then 
In the second century, there was this group of guys who were done with all of the, they, with all of the persecution in Jerusalem, in the Maccabees. And there was a brief little period of time where the, these, these, these Jews rebelled against their oppressors and they took over Jerusalem again in Israel. And it became run by Jews, the Maccabees. It was a Maccabee rebellion. It was an amazing time in the second century, but it didn't last long. Because not long after they, they held power, all of a sudden the, Ro- the Republic of Rome comes in, the, I- the legs of iron. And Jerusalem falls into a vassal state about one century before, and then just a few years before the Messiah is born, there was a, a man named uh, Caesar Augustus. When Caesar came into power, uh, he did something. He consolidated the, the power of Rome, and it changed from the Republic of Rome to the Roman Empire, the feet of iron and clay, and became very expansionistic. And it was then, at that time, that we find Herod, and we find the Messiah being born. There have been over 400 years of silence from heaven, but God was not still. When we read in this passage, I think you've got to put yourself in the, in the place of those Jews that were there, and they were sitting there, and were they watching? How is it that these wise men from the east could see something that those that were only six miles north of, of where the, the Messiah was born totally missed it? Because I think it's sometimes in the midst of quiet, when, when we don't think that God is talking to us, we don't think that he's at work. And in the quiet times, we give up on God and we stop looking. And when we stop looking, we stop watching, we stop listening, we stop hearing, and we stop seeing. And we, sometimes we miss out. Jesus was born, it says, there in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. Our Messiah is a real person. He was born in real time, in real space, in real history in real fulfillment to real prophecy. Something else I think we see from this is that it was Magi from the East that came. These are the least likely people. You know, the Gospel of Matthew was written by, well, the follower of Jesus, Matthew, Levi. He was a, uh, he was a Jew. And he writes it to explain to the Jews the good news that the Messiah had come. That's the whole purpose of this Gospel. And I think it's interesting that in this gospel that was written for, by a Jew to other Jews from a Jewish perspective about their Messiah, he includes this story about these Gentiles who got to see the Messiah and they missed it. That is a fascinating thing. And you know who leaves this story out? Luke, who was the Gentile, who was explaining the gospel to the Gentiles. I think God's got a good sense of humor. He writes this, and he says, a Magi from the East, they show up. Right? And who were these Magi? Well, were they Babylonians? Some people say yes. Why? Because that was the, the area, the Chaldeans, all this became kind of like their Harvard and Yale, right, of the time that the, the wise men from the east were considered to be the most wise of all the people. And as the Roman Empire continued to expand, that was still a, a hub of intellectualism right there. So it may have been there. Maybe it was further east. Who knows? Because it just says from the east. But Magi lets us know that these were guys that were not really Jewish. They were the kind we would call like astrologers, right? They were looking into the stars for all kinds of things. They weren't even, they were looking for God, but they were looking for God, it seemed like in all the wrong places, right? But were they? You see, even before these Magi were ever born, hundreds of years before that, there was that guy named Daniel who interjects truth into some of their teaching. You know, something I think is interesting that these guys were looking into the stars for Jesus and and, and 
In Genesis, when God creates the world, this is what it says about the stars. He says, and he said, let there be lights in the vault of sky to separate the day from night and let them serve as signs to mark the sacred times, days, and years. From the very beginning, God warned us. He said, I'm going to set a clock, a calendar for you. And maybe these guys, their motivations were wrong. They were looking for the stars to worship them and all these things. But just because people misinterpret God doesn't mean that God doesn't speak. And they had enough wisdom enough to determine that God was speaking in the stars. And think how crazy that is. That before the very creation of time, God set the stars in place so that they would mark the time that he would be born. That's some planning. God is not slow. That's why it says in Scripture, at just the right time, Christ was born. God has a plan, and he's working according to it. And so in the long series of, of silence that we sometimes endure, it doesn't mean that God is absent. His plan is already in place, and it is working like clockwork. And these magi, because they weren't tired of waiting, they saw what the, the uh, teachers of law missed. So they watched we saw his star. Hare and the priest all missed it. They did. They had the word, all this kind of stuff. They didn't get it. I love that in verse 3. If you ever feel like you've messed up on your job, right, when your boss comes in and you're like, hey, boy, you missed this. I imagine the wise men were like that because King Hare is like, wait, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him because he didn't know the news. He had hired these guys, the Sanhedrin, the wise men, the, the scholars. They're supposed to be keeping an eye out for this. And he's like, how come these foreigners know something that I don't? You missed it. And I think it's interesting. It says that Herod was disturbed. I always thought Herod was disturbed when I first read it because he was like, I missed this great news. Right? But no, Herod was disturbed because there was a new contender for the throne. And I imagine the, these wise men came to the to all this long journey, and they came up to, uh, to, to Herod, and they make it to Jerusalem, and they're thinking, this is naturally where the king is going to be born, right? Because where would you think a king would be born? In a palace. And where would the king of Jews be born? In the palace where the king of the Jews lives. Wouldn't that make sense? So they make this long journey, and they show up, and they're like, knock, knock, and I bet you they were expecting, they'd open the door, and they'd be like, hey, we just had a newborn baby. But no. They get there, and Herod's like, what? There's another king in town? Because that was bad news. And the wise men were smart enough not just to kind of break that news to somebody they knew would be kind of a tyrant about it, right? They were absolutely, I guarantee, they expected that Herod was like, oh, yeah, it's my boy. He's going to be king all kinds of things, right? That's not what they found. And so they go, and they, and they, they watch. They were watching, and, and, and they bring this up, and, and Herod wasn't looking, and he was troubled. And why was everybody else troubled? Because when the king is scared, it's bad for everybody else, isn't it? If he would kill his own sister and her brothers, he would have no trouble killing other people. This was not necessarily great news for the people at the time. At least not that they knew of. So the wise men, though, they did see what the others didn't. But the wise men didn't have what the others had. Even though the, the teachers of law didn't see the signs and the star, they missed that. What they did have is they had the word of God. They still had the scripture, and they knew that. And the wise men, could, their knowledge can only take them so far. And so God gave them scripture. And in scripture, pointed them exactly to where the Messiah would be. And, and the Jews knew exactly, through the prophecies of God, exactly where the Messiah would be born. And that was in Bethlehem. You know, that's like six miles away, not far. 
In fact, it comes to Micah 5 too. This was written around the same time Isaiah wrote. Now, 700 years before Jesus was born, it prophesies the Messiah was going to be born in this little, timely, know-nothing town outside of the big city. This is about you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Through you, although you are small amongst the clans of Judah, out of you will come one from, for me who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Now, how cool that is. Now, Bethlehem was not a big place. It was smaller than Estes Park. You think about 700 years before the Messiah comes, God says he's not going to be born in the place everyone expects the Messiah to be born. He's not going to be born in Jerusalem. Right? Well, that really narrows down who qualifies to be Messiah because not many people are born in Bethlehem. And I imagine most people who are born in Bethlehem, they're like, yeah, you're not the Messiah, right? Right? Small town, a bunch of shepherds and stuff, right? God, perf- he, he predicted it, something that no one believed. It was like crazy, but they knew enough to say, if well, he's going to be born, that's where he's going to be at. And so the wise men did what the people who claimed to be faithful didn't do. The wise men didn't just didn't just believe, they didn't just watch, they went. This is, this is remarkable. It says, we saw his star when it rose, and we have come. That's the difference between faith in our head and faith in action, which is actually the Bible calls true faith, right? Like when we're actually supposed to follow. So we saw his star, we actually went somewhere. It wasn't just like walking across the street for these guys. If they were in, in, uh, in Babylon, and they want to travel all the way to Jerusalem. They can't go by the, where the crow flies because there's a desert there and you'll die. And these are wise men, so they're not going to do that. So they're going to travel up around where the rivers are and where there's water and cities. So 700 miles. You walk 700 miles? That's a long way to walk. That's a long way to ride a donkey, right? Or a camel or whatever they rode, right? That's a long way to go. Uh, maybe that's why it took them so long. Because you don't just like look at a star and say, hey, look at that star. Hey, let's go right now. You're like, wow, that's a star about a king that's uh, there. And we're going to have to prepare a long trip because they're wise men, right? So they prepare. And so they get all their stuff together. And that takes a little bit of time. And they're looking at the star and they're reading it and making sure that they're right. And I'm sure that there are people around them says, yeah, that's pretty convincing. But what if you're wrong? Right? But they prepared. And not only they prepare, then there was the day where they had to say goodbye to their families, not knowing that they would ever see them again, because traveling like that was not something that people just did. Most people didn't travel more than 30 yeah, miles away from their home in their entire lives. These guys were going on a voyage, a journey that was crazy long and very dangerous. And it was going to be very uncomfortable, and they're leaving their wealth and their comfort and everything that they know, but they're going to go. And so they went, faith in action. They saw enough to trust enough to say, I'm just going to go because I don't want to miss out. And so they did. And so what do they do? They go all the way and they show up in Jerusalem where I'm sure that they were confident that's exactly where they were supposed to be. And they knock on the door of Herod, right? And he's like, what? No, not here. Which would, have you ever followed God and you thought, you know, God's telling you to do something. You go and you do it. You're trying to be faithful and you go and you do exactly what you think God told you to do. And then you, you get there and then like nothing happens. I imagine that was kind of the feeling that they had, right? Here we traveled 700 miles. You're kidding me? This kid isn't born here? Oh, no, he's six miles away. What? And it's nighttime. They don't even get to stay because the star is in front of them. Think about that. Not only get to travel, they get to travel at night because they wanted to finish the journey. And when when the king said, no, not here, he's over there, they went. 
right away, at night. They weren't going to wait. And I think this is interesting. Herod doesn't go. And the Sanhedrin don't go. They see that these other people see that the prophecy is being fulfilled. The Messiah has come after 400 years of silence. Silence. you think that these guys would be excited? They're like, no, we're not going. Why? Because they don't want to. They know that anybody who's going to worship that king is going to be subject to death by King Herod, I would imagine. They don't want to put their faith in action because it would cost them too much. So they don't go. They stay. So the wise men, these Gentiles, these people that worship the stars get to show up and get to see the Messiah, those that the Sanhedrin missed. The wise men went. And when they went, God was there to, to guide them still. It said they, they saw the star again, and somehow it stopped over the place where Jesus was. They were able to read the star somehow. And they went into this, this middle-class house, right, because they weren't in the stable still, because that would be crazy after all those years. They're in a house. And I don't know if they went back to their home first, and it's Nazareth after 12 days. It says, that, or if they went here first and then down to Egypt and then back to Nazareth. It doesn't matter. All I know is they're in, a, they're in a house. These guys find them, open the door. Here's baby Jesus, toddler Jesus, and Mother Mary. What an amazing thing. And when they get there, I'm sure this is exactly not what they had in mind. Because God doesn't always reveal himself to us the way that we think that he should, does he? Oftentimes, in the way that we, he reveals himself, at first we say, well, we have these other expectations, and so we feel let down because you didn't meet my Hollywood ideal of what you should do. And God says, I'm doing something so much more powerful than that. These guys walk into this house, a middle-class home somewhere in Bethlehem, this little tiny town, not surrounded by, by attendants and all these other things. You just have this mom and this kid. And in that setting where it doesn't feel so reverent, like when you walk into, have you ever been to like the White House and you walk into the White House and you're feeling like, oh man, I feel very small because this is a very big place and this is a lot of power, right? It's a, an enormous thing. I, they walk into not someplace big like that. They walk into like this little house. But their reverence wasn't for the place, it was for the person. So it says in verse 11 that they worshiped. I love that. And coming to the house, they saw the child and Mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Some things I'm thinking you know, want to recognize that their worship was reverence. I don't know if these guys recognized that Jesus was God. Who knows what their level of understanding was. I don't know if they bowed down and said, well, you are the Savior of the world. What they did know is that this guy was a king, and he was going to be a ruler of all kinds of things. And they bowed down to his power and reverence and said, you know what? <laughs> you are great <laughs> to this child which takes a lot of humility because you can think of any of you men here that are a little bit older to bow down before a toddler. There's a level of, of humility and reverence that is necessary that had to be genuine, and it was. But it wasn't just that they bowed down. It doesn't just take that there was reverence that was there, but there was also presence. See, worship requires presence, doesn't it? These wise men couldn't have bowed down and worshiped this king if they were still back in the east. And there were a lot of other wise men back in the East. I'm sure they had friends and family and supporters that were there that could not worship because they weren't in the presence of God. To worship requires presence. I think it's amazing that our God is is a God that covers all time and space and place. That we don't have to go on some type of journey to find some temple somewhere to bow down before some statue that's a a representation of who God must be because that's where he lives. That God fills the entire universe, which means that you can worship, we can live lives of worship now, today. But it's not just our physical presence, it requires our emotional and spiritual presence, doesn't it? I mean, you, you can show up here today and you can be distant in your heart 
and you can sit so close to the very foot of Christ and still not worship. God wants us to come near. It requires our presence. And these men brought themselves. But it also requires sacrifice. Worship isn't just being close to God. It is a sacrifice for God. I'm glad that our God doesn't require a blood sacrifice from us. That he gave a blood sacrifice for us so that we could come near him. But our God did say this, I will give you life. He will give us, that's a gift, free life, forgiveness from sins, eternal life, all those wonderful things, but it does require something. It requires our life in exchange, doesn't it? These wise men were smart enough that they came prepared knowing that there was going to be a sacrifice necessary. They brought expensive gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh. These were the kinds of gifts that you would give to royalty because that's exactly what they were expecting to find. And so they brought gifts worthy of that. I imagine when they showed up at Herod's palace, they thought these are perfect gifts for a king. But when you show up at a middle-class house, I imagine there might have been the fleeting thought, well, we could just stop at like a, you know, the camel's quick stop on the way in by a little card, right? That should be good enough, right? I mean, we could hold back because God is meek and mild, so maybe we should just hold back and I'll keep the best for myself. But they didn't. They brought their best, expensive gifts fit for a king. And when we come to God and we want to worship him, we've got to bring ourselves in presence. We also got to, to bring our best. God does not deserve leftovers. He is king of kings and he is Lord of lords. And there is sacrifice that is necessary. And the f- Christian faith was never designed to make us comfortable. It was designed to bring us peace. And these men, they brought their best. So what's the moral of this story? It's a great story, isn't it? I love this moral. The Messiah has come. Isn't that good news? We're not waiting anymore. For 20 centuries, God spoke. Abraham had to wait 20 centuries till the Messiah would come. We're, not, we're on the other side. We're 20 centuries past it. The Messiah has come. Light has come into the world. Darkness has been defeated. That's good news. The Prince of Peace reigns. Our God is with us. That is amazing. That's news worthy of us to, to, to be excited about. That's something that can give us peace because our God keeps his word. And do you know what? I, I, it says in the Bible, another prophecy about when Jesus said he promised he'll come back again. And it says before he comes back again, there will be people that will scoff at those who still follow him and say this, God hasn't come back yet. Are you still waiting? Are you still waiting? Just because God is silent doesn't mean he's not at work. These wise men didn't give up in the silence. We are in a time where the Messiah has come and he reigns and he's building his kingdom just as though he said he did. Just because we haven't seen new prophets in 20 centuries doesn't mean that our God is not on the, on the, on the doorstep. He's coming. He has come and he will come again and he does exactly what he claimed to do. And we see Christ. We see him in Scripture, don't we? We see him in the prophecies and everything we do. Over 300 prophecies about who Jesus was and what he would do and and how he would die and how he would rise again and how he would save us and and all of those things. Very specific. We see him there. We also see him in the New Testament. We here at this church, we believe we we are disciples of Jesus that build disciples of Jesus. You know what a disciple is? Somebody who follows. These wise men were wise enough they followed a star. We get to follow the Lord, the Messiah. We get to, what does that mean? We get to obey what he taught. We get to believe what he says is true. We get to live a whole new life. 
The Messiah has come. And so he invites us now to come to him in faith, just as these wise men. Whatever the journey, and you might feel light years away from God, you can make the journey. He's there for you. And he invites you to come and to worship him, to put him in that central place in your life, to let him be your king of kings and Lord of lords. So how do we put this into practice? Well, I think at Christmas time, it's easy for us to, to get caught up in just tradition. But I want you to know this, that God is so much more than just a tradition. It's great to remember. It's good to prepare our hearts. But there's actually steps. Every journey is, is a series of steps, isn't it? A series of steps in the right direction. These wise men traveled 700 miles on faith because they saw the star. And every single step was an act of the will, wasn't it? Every single one. And I don't think any per one step would make anybody be like, whoa, that was a huge step. It was just steps. And I'm sure they stumbled along the way, but they took the steps and they, and they came to the Lord. That's what commitments are. I believe very deeply that our God is a God of next steps. That he doesn't tell us, bring us to the words so we feel good about ourselves. He brings us to the words so that we can see and we can take one more step closer, right? One more step closer to faithfulness. One more step closer to hope. One more step closer to love. And that's what these are about. So I have some some ideas that might help you take some steps of faith. And the first one is memorize Isaiah 9-6. It's on the back of your connection cards. It's a great thing. And maybe that's where you begin. Maybe you begin today and, and realizing that the world may not be what you thought it was. That what we see now is not the way things always will be. That the differences and the division and the hatred and the fear and the brokenness and the pain and the sickness of this world are temporary things being overcome by a mighty God who has already come. That for to us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government's on his shoulders. And that allows me to have a greater identity with you. I don't care what country you're from, your background you're from. If you are in Christ, you are my brother or sister in Christ. We have the same king. There is no division. We have a a God of hope. Unto us, a child is born and given. It's not just government will be on his shoulders, but his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. You are not just floating in this world without help. God, the Holy Spirit, is in you as a counselor and a comforter, and you have his word as a guide. And he's not going to steer you wrong. So if you're today and you're looking for for direction or hope or wisdom, it's not up to just you alone. He hasn't abandoned you. For to us, that child was born. And he's a wonderful counselor. And you know what? He's a mighty God. And if you are here today and you need God's salvation, you need his help, and you need his hope, there is nothing that you are going through that that is mightier than he is. And he doesn't oftentimes just calm the storms. What he does is he carries you through it. And he makes you strong in the midst of it so you're never afraid of a storm again. Mighty. And he's a prince of peace. In the midst of this world, which tells us to hate the other person. In the midst of this world that says it's us versus them. In the midst of this world in which we're always afraid about, am I going to have enough? I'm going to be taken care of. Everything's on my shoulders and I'm filled with anxiety. We have a prince who gave us peace and says, I will care for you. Everything you need, just seek me and I will care for you. A king that says, I'm going to forgive you so you can forgive other people. We have a prince that we serve. Maybe your step this week is be memorizing this passage. So in your brokenness and in the storm of your life, you'll get to anchor yourself to the king who came. So maybe that's what you do. Maybe what you do is you need to read Matthew 2. Read about the Messiah, how he showed up, 
Real guy, real time, real space. Read the story. How is it that we can be his followers if we don't know who he is? So I challenge you this week. Read the chapter. I preached on it, a little of it. Read it. Maybe what you'll want to do after you read the first chapter, chapter two, you'll want to keep reading. It's really great stuff. But start there with chapter two. How about this? Maybe what you need to do is you say, I'm going to attend the next three weeks. Why? Because worship requires presence. And I know you can worship God anywhere, but he says he wants us to come together and worship him as a body. So why not give Jesus the gift he actually asked for this Christmas and show up? And maybe that's what you do. Or maybe there's this other one on the bottom. I've got some suggestions for that too. Maybe what you need to do is you need to repent. I'll tell you, a journey is, is a series of steps in the right direction. And maybe you're supposed to be a disciple of Jesus, but you're walking away from him. There are areas in your life doing things that you know you shouldn't be doing. Maybe you're giving into doubt. Maybe you're giving into sin. Maybe you're giving into despair. This is a time, it's an opportunity to come back to the Savior. Maybe what you do is steps of faithfulness and says, you know what? I'm going to say no to these things that I know that are taking me away from God, and I will say yes to God, and I will take the journey back. It's not a giant leap. It's a series of steps. And this is your first one this week. And you might know exactly what I'm talking about. In your life right now, you're saying, I'm saying no to this. Steps of faith. Let me pray for you, so let me know. Or maybe what you need to do is you need to worship. Maybe this season has all been about everything but God. And this time, it's all about the busyness or the, or the things, or what can I get from stuff. I tell you what, there's a king that needs to sit at the throne of your life. And maybe what you need to do, your steps of faithfulness, is to put God in that throne of your life, to put Christ there and say, he has come, he deserves to be worshipped, not me. His will, not mine. And this week, that's where you begin. I don't know what your commitment is. If the Holy Spirit's telling you to do something, then listen to him, not me. But write it down, let me know so I can pray for you. That's what I do as a pastor. Let me, let me shepherd you. There's another commitment. Please let me know that. If there's a prayer request, we do pray for you every week, and it's a great joy. God answers prayers in powerful ways. So write those down, and here in a minute, we're going to take our offering. As we do, take this connection card, put it in the offering basket along with your tithes and your gifts, right? Make this an act of worship to our king. Let's pray for our offering and for our commitments, and then we'll let the worship in uh, close us in, in worship. Father God, we love you because you are worthy of our love. We serve you, God, because you're worthy of our service. You are the king of heaven and you are the reigning king of of the entire universe. And God, out of your mercy and your gentleness, it says that you're, you're delaying your return just long enough for the sake of those who are yet to repent. It just shows us, God, that you don't always demand what you deserve, but you will always, at the end, you will get it. You will get our praise. So, Father, for those that are here today that need to bow a knee to you, I pray you give us the courage to do that. Father, for those of us that are here today that need to, to come to you in, in submission and in humility, God, help us draw us to your throne. Father, for those of us that are here today that see you as a star far off and we just have enough to know that you're real, Father, give us the faithfulness to put our faith into action and to come to you. And Father, for all of us, even though we know that you are are waiting, we know you're at work, so help us to be a church that is watchful. May we not wander from your word. Let us not be like the wise men who are at the temple, Father. Let us be like the wise men who are on the path. 
Let us keep our eyes up, Lord. May we worship you as we wait for you, as we serve you faithfully. And God, I pray that our, our commitments will draw us in that direction. Father, I pray for our tithes and our offerings, just like these wise men brought offerings to you. May we bring you our best, Father, invest in your kingdom. We ask this in the wonderful name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.